A video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey guys, we're learning how to put on the whole armor of God. (laughs) And this is video number six. And we've reached the first part of verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 6. And take the helmet of salvation. Take the helmet of salvation. So God commands us to not only put on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of peace and take up the shield of faith. He commands us to take the helmet of salvation. Obviously, if you're going to be a soldier in an army, you need a helmet to protect your head, right? Of course. God tells us here that our helmet is salvation. Now, we could take this more than one way. We could assume maybe that what he means is before we try to fight Satan, we better make sure we're really saved, that we have salvation, that we're truly trusting Jesus as our Savior and our our, our Lord. Because certainly it's true that without Jesus, we have no hope at all of resisting Satan. We know that's true. But I think maybe this is a little bit deeper than that. It's interesting, in another one of Paul's letters, this is in his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul refers to our helmet as the hope of salvation. He includes the word hope, the hope of salvation. That's in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. And it reminds us that there's more than one tense to our salvation. Hope kind of makes us think of the future, right? We could think of our salvation as consisting of three aspects. When we first trusted Jesus, we were immediately justified. That's past tense. That's already happened to us. He immediately justified us. Our sins were forgiven. He declared us righteous. He declared us justified in the sight of God. But there's an ongoing aspect of our salvation too. You realize that? Because day by day, we're being, the Bible word is sanctified. It means set apart day by day, more and more like Jesus, more and more useful for God's glory. We kind of think of that in conjunction with our spiritual growth being set apart for God on and on more and more throughout this life. That's something that's ongoing. It's already started. Started when we trusted Jesus and it's continuing. But finally, there's also a future aspect to our salvation. We call it glorification. God calls it glorification. It happens when Jesus comes back. When Jesus comes back, we're going to be raised from the dead and we're going to receive new glorified bodies. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us all about that, but of course other places in Scripture as well. But that's not happened yet, has it? We are in hope waiting for that part of our salvation. It's certain it's just part of our future. Now, I realize when I start talking about hope like this, maybe we need to remind ourselves that in 21st century American English, the word hope means something different than the Greek word that it translates in the New Testament. Today, when I say that I hope something happens, usually I mean it might happen, it might not happen, I'd really like for it to happen, but there's some doubt in my mind about whether it'll happen or not. You know, it may not happen. (laughs) But in the Bible, it's different. When you see the word hope in the New Testament, it, it refers to a certain expectation. It's future but it's a certain blessing that's coming, something that's certainly going to happen. There's no doubt. It's just still in the future. It hasn't happened yet. That's why we're hoping for it, but it doesn't mean it may not happen. You see see what I'm saying? For example, we have hope that Jesus will return. 
That doesn't mean, well, maybe he will and maybe he won't. It'd be nice if he did. <laughs> no, no, he's certainly going to return. Very, very certainly. But it's not happened yet. It's still in the future. So we realize that there are aspects of our salvation that are still future. Our glorification is still in the future. But there's no doubt about it. We'll see that more in the scripture in just a minute. But we look forward to our future glorification with complete assurance. In Romans 8, God tells us, we're going to look at this verse again in a minute. But he says, you know what? Whom he, that is God, predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There it is. See what I mean? There's, there's no implication of doubt about this. There's no uncertainty in the New Testament about it, like there is the way we use the word hope today. So what's God telling us when he says, put on the hope of salvation for a helmet? I think he's telling us we must never lose sight of the long range view of our warfare. If we forget the hope of salvation, Satan can cause us to give up, to quit, to despair, to get discouraged. He can whisper words to us like, this is taking too long. Uh, this fight's lasting much longer than you thought it would, isn't it? This isn't working for you very well now, is it? You might as well quit, huh? You're not going to make it. <laughs> he loves to try to frustrate God's kids like that if he can. So the helmet of salvation enabled us to maintain this total confidence in ultimate, I underline the word ultimate there, ultimate victory. No matter how long the battle may seem to last here on earth, it may seem to get long sometimes, and no matter how painful it seems to be or how difficult things may be, sometimes we do go through painful, difficult times. But we have a salvation that is certain and secure and eternal. We cannot and we will not be ultimately defeated, guys. We need to get that in our heads. So there's no room for discouragement if we have on the helmet of salvation. See the point? And again, I'm going to try to remember to include a link to these verses so you can see them for yourselves. I hope I remember to do that. And you saw what I did, right? I'm using the word hope, but not in the biblical sense, because I might remember it and I might not. <laughs> I might forget. See the difference? God doesn't forget. When God says we have hope, he means it's going to happen. He's not going to mess it up. He's not going to let it not happen. So here are a few verses where God told us about our helmet of salvation. This is God's word now. Remember, this is God's word. Galatians chapter 6. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to compare with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's on the way. Colossians 1, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope, there it is again, this certain expectation of glory. Romans chapter 8, we already read this one. Whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Romans chapter 13, besides this, you know the time that the hours come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. We're getting there. 
Now, it may have already come to your mind, if you've been listening very closely, and especially if you happen to be a Bible-believing Baptist or a Bible-believing Presbyterian, and there are others, of course, but those two come to my mind pretty quickly, that all of this relates to a doctrine that many of us Christians believe to be very, very important and hold very, very dear. It's a doctrine that we quite often refer to as the security of the believer, the security of the believer. But it's also been called the perseverance of the saints, the perseverance of the saints. I think that may actually be a better name because God enabled his kids, his saints to persevere. I think it's more descriptive. But the teaching is simply that once we've truly put our faith in our risen Lord Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins, he rose again, we put our faith and trust in him, he changes our lives forever, right? We become children of God. We're given the gift of eternal life. And that can never really change. If, it's, if we're true, if we're sincere, if it's honest, if we really are trusting Jesus, it's forever. Our future's sealed and certain. He's going to keep us. He enables us to persevere throughout this life. Now, I'm very aware that I have many dear brothers and sisters in Christ who don't believe I'm right about this. They don't believe this to be correct. And I just want to say, we can disagree about this and still love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, right? But I tell you what, I've talked with some of these people at length about this issue, and sometimes I think we're not as far apart as it may seem like we are. We kind of have a tendency sometimes to unfairly caricature each other sometimes. And sometimes brothers and sisters who say they don't believe this doctrine, they still have a lot of assurance. I think that's the case. I've run into a lot of people like that. They seem to have a lot of assurance of their own personal salvation. Anyway, having said that, I'd like to offer you some of the verses that convince me that once we've truly become one of God's kids, nothing can ever change it. And I believe this is the power of the helmet of salvation. That whatever happens between now and then, and a lot can happen between now and then, but if I'm truly His, I'm assured of the outcome of my salvation. I know the outcome. So I want to offer some more scriptures for you, uh, this time with a few brief comments. And I'm just praying that this study will encourage Christians who might be struggling with thoughts that maybe they've fallen out of grace or maybe they've lost their salvation or maybe they're living their lives in anxiety and fear that something might happen someday and, and they would miss out on eternal life. Like I said, I believe the Bible plainly teaches that once you truly become a child of God, nothing can ever change that. He'll keep you forever. We finally get this wonderful truth internalized. I believe it gives us enormous confidence in God to face the battles of life. Now, before I go any further, I want to clarify one more thing. Some of you may be ahead of me here too. Listen carefully here now. I realize that there are many people who claim to be children of God, but they're not. Just because somebody claims to know Jesus doesn't mean that he or she really knows Jesus. I talk about this quite a bit in that series of four videos I think I've got on, on the gospel. I want to check that out. But the sad truth is, it's really sad, but this doctrine of the perseverance of saints has often been very shockingly and dangerously perverted and misused by people who are really unbelievers 
to try to justify continuing in sin. I know that happens. I've heard people say things like this, like, hey, it's okay for me to continue in this sin. I'm a Baptist. We believe once saved, always saved. No big deal. (laughs) No, 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 no. Listen to me carefully. A true believer, a true follower of Jesus has no desire to continue in any sin. Read 1 John if you haven't read it yet or hadn't read it in a while. Even though the weaknesses of the flesh, yes, we're still weak in the flesh. Yes, we're still walking in these bodies. And yes, we're still tempted by the world and our flesh and the devil. And we may fall into sin often, but the deepest desire of our heart is to stay out of it. We're not excusing it. You see my point? But I hope you'll be convinced from these verses that our loving Father in heaven wants us to have a deep assurance and deep peace and a deep sense of security that comes from knowing he certainly will keep us as his own forever. You'll find yourself, I believe, to be a far more effective spiritual warrior when you know in the depths of your being that God has made you invulnerable. You know, the Superman, one of his characteristics, you remember the comics, he was invulnerable. (laughs) Well, you're invulnerable too. Not physically, your body may be destroyed, but your inner man, the real you, is eternally indestructible. And once we get a hold of that, pretty powerful. We can fight our enemy with complete confidence and boldness. We know that in the end, Satan is ultimately doomed. And in the end, we are ultimately safe and secure forever. With Jesus. On the other hand, if the enemy can talk us out of this important doctrine, it becomes pretty easy for him to intimidate us, maybe with fears that someday he might somehow pull a slick one on us and cause us to lose our salvation after all. The assurance that comes from this doctrine is, I believe, critical for effective long-range spiritual warfare. Now I want us to look at some verses. Remember, this is God's Word. I think you'll be amazed. Psalm 37, for the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones or his saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. So, will he forsake us if we mess up? No, he says he does not forsake his godly ones. How long will he preserve us? Well, he tells us right there, forever, forever. Psalm 94, for the Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. Will the Lord ever decide to let us go? No. Will he forsake us? No. Isaiah 51, lift up your eyes to the sky. Then look to the earth beneath, for the sky will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die in like manner. But my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not wane. How long can we depend on God's salvation lasting? He makes it very clear, forever. And to underscore that fact that he's not going to change his mind about our salvation, he stresses that even after the heavens vanish away like smoke, and even after the earth waxes old like a garment, his salvation remains, and it remains forever. John 3. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. What kind of life does he say we have if we believe in Jesus? Eternal. So, 
Can you lose your salvation? Not unless eternal means something other than eternal. John chapter 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. So when can a true believer fall back into condemnation and judgment? Never. The life he gives is, he says it again, eternal. So after 10 or 15 years of living a Christian life, if, if you were able to do something that caused you to lose the life he gave you, it wouldn't have been eternal, would it? It would only have been 10 or 15 year life. <laughs> See my point? His point. John chapter 6. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. How many of the ones called by God and given to Jesus actually come to him? All of us. And how many of us who come to him will he keep? All of us. <laughs> so are there certain circumstances that might cause him to change his mind about us and cast us out? No. He says, certainly not. You see the word certainly not. The Greek here translated certainly not is very, very emphatic. It indicates absolutely no way. It's unthinkable that he would cast us out. John chapter 6 again. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. So how many of us who've been given by the Father to the Son can expect to be lost again at some later date? None. Here's more from John chapter 6. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. What's God's will concerning the number of people who believe on Jesus who actually end up with eternal life? Everyone. God's definitely willing to keep us. Now, I know some people might say, yeah, He's willing, but is He able? I mean, well, that's kind of silly, I guess. But look at 2 Timothy 1. For this reason, I also suffer these things, Paul said, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I believe, and I'm convinced that he is able. He's able to guard what I've entrusted to him against that day. Hebrews 7. Hence also, he's able, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jude, chapter 1, only one chapter in Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, falling, to make you stand, in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Once again, John chapter 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. So is eternal life something we have now, or we'll have it someday? No, he says if we have it now. If we believe, we have eternal life now. And if the life we have now is eternal, can we lose it? Well, I said it before, not unless eternal means something other than eternal. <laughs> John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. So at what point might one of Christ's sheep lose their salvation and perish? He says, never. Who can snatch you away from Jesus' hand? Maybe another, maybe another man, maybe you yourself, maybe a demon, or maybe Satan. No, nobody, he says. By the way, the King James word that's translated man here is really not in the Greek. Literally, it's neither shall anyone. It could refer to a man or a demon. Nobody can pluck them out of my hand, Jesus says.
Again, John chapter 10, my father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So he just kind of underlines it. You see what he's doing there? He's making the truth of our security emphatic. Jesus says, if by some inconceivable manner someone was able to get through my hand to my sheep, they certainly can't get through the Father's hand. <laughs> if some, so if someone were to foolishly argue there might be someone other, you know, that could somehow be greater than Jesus, that could take us away from Jesus, nobody's going to argue there's someone greater than God himself, God the Father himself. This is a powerful statement of our security. John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, and I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep them, keep them in your name, the name which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are. Do you have confidence in the prayers of Jesus? This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's talking to his Father. Well, if we're confident in his prayers, we better be confident of our security in him because he asked the Father to keep us. You think the Father will refuse to do that? No. Romans chapter 5, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. This is a very powerful argument Paul's making, inspired by the Holy Spirit, of course, but it's a powerful argument from the greater to the lesser for the security of the believer. In other words, God's done this one thing that's so amazingly great. Certainly he'll do this other thing, which is, it's great, but by comparison, it's much less. You see, that's the argument. He's making it clear here. There was a time when we were enemies of God. It's in verse 10. We were sinners, verse 8. Back in verse 6, he tells us we were weak and helpless and ungodly. We were in rebellion against God. Now, what did God do for us while we were in that terrible state? Well, he sent his only begotten son to die for us. And we were justified. Verse 9. We were declared to be righteous, even though we were enemies. And we were helpless to do anything for ourselves. Now we've been reconciled to God. That's in verse 10. So God's wrath was upon us before, but now he looks upon us in mercy and grace because of Jesus. Remember, there was nothing at all we could have done in that state to make ourselves more acceptable to God. He did it unilaterally. It's all God without any of our help. And in light of this truth, verse 9 just packs this powerful logical punch. You see his logic here? He's done the hard part already. He made righteous sons out of his enemies. Well, if he loved his enemies enough to do that, will he not love his sons enough to keep them? If he loved ungodly enemies enough to make them his sons, will he now change his mind about us now that we're his sons? It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable. This is a powerful argument for our security. Romans 8, we've already seen this. Let's look at it one more time. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, you see the word he? Our security depends on God, not us. 
And you notice, and you couldn't have missed it, that inexorable sequence that he gives us here. If we were foreknown, then we were predestined. If we were predestined, then we're called. If we're called, then we're justified. If we're justified, then we're glorified. Even though we've not experienced glorification yet, God's letting us know it's certain. It's part of that process. It's so certain. He says, I'm going to refer to it in the past tense as if it already occurred. And yet we know it's still in our future. Here's some more from Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? <laughs> so he's saying, okay, you see, God is on your side, right? So with God himself on your side, who could possibly defeat God? <laughs> so he asked this rhetorical question, what do you have to say about that? <laughs> the answer to which can only be hallelujah. <laughs> Nobody can, right? Of course. Here's more from Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So here he's reinforcing what we already saw a few minutes ago in chapter 5. If God was willing to send Jesus to die for us, surely, surely he will with Jesus give us everything we might conceivably ever need. If he sacrificed that much to gain us as his children, surely now he'll do whatever it takes to keep us as his children. Here's more from Romans 8. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God's the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So once again, he's demanding an answer. If God is the one who justifies, and Jesus is the one who died for us. And Jesus is the one who was raised for us. And Jesus is the one right now who's interceding for us. Who can possibly bring a charge against us or condemn us? And again, the answer can only be, hallelujah, nobody. Nobody. And then Romans 8 ends with these amazingly powerful words. Some of the most powerful, beautiful words in Scripture, I believe. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as it is written, for your sake, we're being put to death all day long, we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. Here's the question. Can you come up with anything that might be able to separate us from God's love? And then verse 38 and 39, I mean, the powerful answer is resounding. It just kind of echoes through our hearts and minds. No, there's nothing in all creation. Nothing, nothing, nothing. If Christians could end up in hell, they'd be separated from the love of God, right? It's unthinkable. It's impossible. Look at Romans 11. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable. Once God's called us, it's 
irrevocable. He never changes his mind. He never uncalls us. You see, our security is bound together with another doctrine, the doctrine of the immutability of God, the immutability of God. He never changes. There's a very powerful statement back in the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 3. God's saying that Israel, by rights, should have been destroyed. But because God does not change, they were not destroyed. So it says in Malachi chapter 3, For I, the Lord, do not change. I don't change, God says. Therefore, you sons of Jacob, you're not consumed. God doesn't change. He's not going to change his mind about us either. The doctrine of security is also bound together with the doctrine of the omniscience of God. In other words, God knows everything, right? Present, past, future. God knows all things. So do you think he would save somebody whom he knew would later lose it and go to hell after all? Would he waste the blood of Jesus on someone who would eventually end up in hell? No. His calling is irrevocable. Now look at Galatians chapter 3. Another powerful argument. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, he knew what their answer had to be. They received the Spirit by faith, of course. That's the only answer they had. So in verse 3, he says, Well, if you receive the Spirit by faith, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? You see how he's, he's chiding them here. He's saying, What kind of thinking is this? <laughs> you think you start by faith but continue by works? He says, That's foolish. If you believe that you can lose your salvation, then you must believe that your own works enable you to stay saved. It depends on you. But it's not we who keep ourselves saved. It's God who keeps his children. That's the point he's making. Philippians chapter 1. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it or complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's a security. God's the one who started it. Not, not we. We didn't start it. God started it. He's the one who will complete it. We're saved by grace. We're kept by grace. It isn't up to us. It's up to God. 2 Thessalonians 3. But the Lord is faithful. The Lord, the Lord is faithful. And he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. The Lord is faithful. We depend on his faithfulness, not our own. He's the one who will protect us from Satan's attempts to get at us. 2 Timothy 1. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I believe, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. You see Paul's certainty? I know, I know, God's able. God's able to keep us, and of course he's willing. We've already seen that in Matthew 18 and John 6 earlier. God's able to keep what we've entrusted to him. What have we entrusted to him? Our souls, our lives, our salvation. He's willing and he's able. Hebrews 7, hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So how far does God's ability to save us extend? For a few years? <laughs> no, forever. He's able to save us forever. We may stumble. We may fail some tests as God prepares us for eternity. We may go down from time to time, but we'll never go out. Jesus forever intercedes for us. How can our salvation not be secure? 1 Peter chapter 1, who have protected 
by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. How are we kept? By our ability to hang on? No, we're kept by the power of God. God himself enables us to persevere. 1 John chapter 2, very important verse. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. This verse, I think, very clearly answers the question that's often asked because people will think of specific individuals. Say, what about the guy who once professed that he was following Jesus? He got baptized. He served actively in the church. And then later on, he totally renounces it and goes headlong back into the world in sin. I mean, didn't he lose his salvation at that point? Well, I think the Bible teaches very clearly here and other places as well that those who do not continue in Christ we're not really saved in the first place, regardless of the appearances. Those who are truly saved will continue in Christ. They will persevere, not by their staying power, not in their own strength, but by God's keeping power. You see the difference there? 1 John chapter 5, And the witness is this, that God's given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. So here John's giving us one of the reasons that God gave us 1 John. This little letter of 1 John is a beautiful, powerful little letter, but one of the purposes is that we might know that we have eternal life. Now there are three key words there. You see them? Know, have, and eternal. He wants us to know that we have eternal life. He wants us to know that we have eternal life. Eternal life. This is not a vague, yeah, it should be nice if it all works out. <laughs> no, he wants us to know we have eternal life now. Not someday if we behave well. He also wants us to know this life he gives is eternal. It's not temporary. Think about this for a minute. Even as sinful human beings, we may say to our children, Son, I want you to know I'm never going to stop loving you. If you rebel against me, I may have to get tough with you. I may have to exercise some discipline, some tough love. But when you come to your senses, I'll still be here. I'm, I'll still be here loving you. I'll never disown you. I'll never stop loving you. That's a promise. Now, that's just a little old weak human being. But we say that, don't we, as human beings? Well, God's saying that same thing to us, only it's far more emphatic, with far more power and infinite trustworthiness. You see the difference? <laughs> Jude, chapter 1, the only chapter in Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling or falling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Once again, we've seen this verse before. God emphasizes he is the one who enables us. He's the one who makes us. You see, that makes us stand in the presence of his glory with blameless, with great joy. The Greek word there for make to stand, it's very strong. God doesn't say, I'll encourage you to stand. No, he makes us. He enables us. He makes us stand. Matthew 18, we've looked at this one too. Thus, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And we put that verse with Jude 24, the previous verse we just looked at. He's saying he's able 
and he's willing. You remember hearing about or reading about Charles Spurgeon, the great, incredibly great pastor in London back in the 19th century? He said this one time, and I love it. He said, you know what? You can't drown the feet as long as the head is above water. <laughs> you can't drown the feet or any other part of the body as long as the head's above water, right? Jesus is our head. He's not going to sink. <laughs> so we won't sink either. God's given us the helmet of salvation. We may go through some tough times. We will go through some tough times between now and then. But listen, ultimately, Satan cannot win. Ultimately, we cannot lose. We win in Christ. We have God's helmet of salvation. We have Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this incredible gift, this incredible piece of armor, the helmet of salvation. Thank you so much that we can be assured that no matter what happens between now and then, we're going to be with you in eternity. And Lord, we know we have a clever enemy, and we know he's sneaky, and he has lots of schemes and tactics and different things he tries. And we know that you, Lord, allow us to go through a lot of trials here. You allow us to go through tests. You allow us to go through painful, difficult times as you prepare us for eternity. But Lord, thank you for this wonderful helmet of salvation in our Lord Jesus that gives us this assurance, this certainty that one of these days we'll be through it all. One of these days we'll be with you forever. Satan's not going to win, Lord. And thank you so much for revealing that to us. Satan cannot get at us, not ultimately. And Lord, we thank you for that. So help us to keep that helmet of salvation firmly in place to remind ourselves quite often of this incredible salvation we have in our Lord Jesus and to be able to resist, again, Satan's tactics which he tries to use to discourage us and get us out of the battle. So keep us in the battle, Lord, and use us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.